9-11-9-1-1 The rubble was in so many places. It's hard to believe such large buildings once stood here. So much concrete. So much destruction. There are still bodies under there. How are we supposed to dig them out? Who is still alive? The groans are deafening. Bloody body bags. The barking of search dogs in the distance. I can taste the gravel dust that blocks the city sky. I've seen this before. I can't do it again. I won't do it again. But I have to do it again. We who believe in freedom cannot rest. I'm Drew Willie with Restoring Justice, and this is Freedom Stories. We who believe in freedom cannot rest until it comes. Where I share struggles and victories of freedom from inside our system, highlighting particular issues and their effect on our marginalized brothers and sisters. We who believe in freedom cannot rest until Richard was a man who served in the Navy. He was serving in 1983 when the Beirut bombing occurred. It was his job to do cleanup. I don't know if any of y'all have seen pictures of the Beirut bombing. It happened before I was born and I had never honestly seen any pictures of it. When I worked on this case, I was forced to look up pictures. The Beirut bombing involved the destruction of buildings, collapsing on people. People's lives were at stake, and those cleaning it up had to go in and pull out bodies. The trauma that the people who cleaned the bodies up must have experienced had to be severe. Despite that, Richard still served in the army, and when he came back home, he was in the reserves. He was in the reserves in 2001 when the Twin Towers fell. He was called again to clean up bodies from the destruction of buildings that had fallen on top of so many human lives. He saw the destruction. He saw lives being lost. He saw the blood again. This trauma triggered something in Richard and he's still dealing with it today. The PTSD that he experienced was a lifelong struggle for someone who gave so much for our country's freedom. He constantly fought it. He went and got counseling, and it was something that he dealt with every day of his life. But he pressed on. He found a job. He found a home. He still liked the sea from his Navy roots, so he bought a boat, and he lived on that boat in his dock. He stayed mainland most of the time, but every once in a while, he would take it out with some friends to go fishing. But he would come back. He would try to live a normal life on the mainland. He got a girlfriend. He had kids. Unfortunately, it was a very hardened, PTSD-struggling individual, often led to a relationship built on drugs and alcohol. The drugs and alcohol often led to fights. Richard didn't like living on the mainland, so he would go to his boat. His girlfriend didn't like that, and so he'd use it as an escape, and she'd get angry at him. And they fought. There were nights when the screaming would get so loud that the neighbors had to call the police. At one point, the woman accused Richard of trying to run her over with his car. 
He was too poor to afford an attorney, so he pled guilty to get out of jail. He went back to his boat, but he had a family violence conviction on his record. That conviction allowed the girl to get protective orders against him in every county and every JP court that she could travel to. Despite the law requiring only one to be valid, he had multiple set against him in multiple counties, meaning that any allegation of any wrongdoing after that flagged him. So him and this woman were in and out of a relationship. It was an unhealthy, tumultuous relationship. And when they were out, she would often accuse him of doing things. The fights between them still went on, and he would often say some atrocious things. He would say very scary things. During his treatment for PTSD, his counselors actually told him, if you start to feel angry from what you experienced, it's best if you write it out. Sit down, write yourself a letter, and throw it away. That's a healthy avenue to get out your anger. Unfortunately, that avenue was applied when directed at his girlfriend. And instead of writing it a letter and throwing it away, he'd send text messages. Text messages from an angry veteran who has experienced incredible trauma and seen human bodies dismantled in ways I can't even picture in my nightmares. The words that he would say in the text messages were something that kept even me up at night. But they were always just words. So when this woman accused him of violating one of the protective orders she had against him because of his prior family violence conviction, he sat. He sat and waited as the misdemeanor turned into a felony, and he sat and waited while his defense counsel did everything he possibly could to get him out. Prosecutors wouldn't listen to the PTSD arguments. They were young, they didn't serve in the army, they didn't have any veterans experience, and yet they still denied him to go to veterans court, a specialty court, an amazing specialty court that recognizes PTSD, that allows someone to deal with their struggles through a criminal conviction. But prosecutors get ultimate say, and Richard was denied, likely because what he was saying was so scary. They also couldn't see through the PTSD in order to give him a reasonable offer. Five years prison? After he fought so hard for this country? Our same country can give him no better than an offer of five years in prison? We fought that case as hard as we could. We tried to express to every level of the prosecutor's office his experience and the realities, and that it wasn't violent. It was only words. But they wouldn't listen. They knew if they waved those text messages around in front of a jury, any jury in the South is going to convict him and send him away. The trouble was, Richard just couldn't get over the fact of the injustice that he was facing to a country that he gave so much for. So I want to pause in Richard's story and speak of the issue of veterans in the criminal justice system. There has been a moving trend, a positive trend, of creating specialty courts called veterans courts. These courts attempt to assign prosecutors and defense attorneys who are veterans themselves ordinarily and who know what the experiences of coming back to citizen life may be. They understand the struggles. They understand the pressures. They understand what might happen. They understand what could happen coming back to citizen life. So they can also understand when certain allegations arise that are actually at the root cause an issue of PTSD. 
There are therapists who know how to treat PTSD. There are counselors that see them and work with them and help them find healthy avenues for getting out their frustrations and anger and any other effects of PTSD that might be the result of serving for our country and fighting in a war. War has a lot of trauma. That trauma is not always dealt with appropriately. And that trauma can lead to decisions that wind up someone in the criminal justice system. War is something that tears people down. It is not meant to build someone up. And the effects that it has on individuals influences them to become someone that the rest of society might end up being scared of. But fortunately, the criminal justice system is starting to recognize that. County to county, they're creating what's called veterans court programs. One issue, though, is that prosecutors have the ultimate say. And so when you apply to veterans courts programs, you turn in what's called a DD-214, saying where you've served and how you were released from service. If the prosecutor doesn't think you were in serious enough combat-level service time, then they can deny you. If they don't like the charges, they can deny you. If they don't like your family because they happen to know you, they can deny you. It is an extremely subjective process, and there is hardly ever any oversight. But elected DAs get to wave the flag of look at how reasonable and how helping and how loving I can be by instituting this veterans court program. You see it a lot in a lot of conservative places where the DA waves a flag of I help veterans. And then you speak to individual veterans who have applied, and a lot of times they are sorely disappointed. Now don't get me wrong, there are a lot of success stories, and I am sure the DAs let the public know as soon as they can when someone has a real positive experience, but there's still a dark side of instituting these policies. We need to be honest, and there needs to be independent review about who can be accepted to this program. It's amazing to have a program, but if the people who truly need it aren't able to take advantage of it, then the program shouldn't have even started to begin with. I won't speak too much more on this issue because there are a lot of other veterans who know a lot more than me. They know a lot more about the availability of resources for them to get treatment in and outside of the criminal justice system. They know the issues behind what a veteran faces a lot more, but I think it's important for everyone to understand that these are serious issues to think about when we talk about criminal justice reform. We need to think about how a society views our veterans from top to bottom from when we send them off to war, when they come back, and how the general society can react to them when they come back. The solution that I propose is if our system was one of restorative justice, if the community could really come together and see what harm has been done and how can we make everyone whole again. Any potential victims and any veteran who has been harmed because of the service that he gave to our country should be given the chance to be made whole and should be given the chance to help make his community whole by any harm he caused from it. And any victims should be given the chance to better acknowledge and understand what our veterans are facing. If we can institute a little bit of love when we look at the ways our veterans might act that we don't like in the criminal justice system, then all of society is gonna be better. Back to Richard's story. Richard finally, when we got to the day of trial, understood what he was facing. He understood that if a jury heard his words, he had no chance. The prosecutor understood that too. 
Luckily, all of the fight and all of the work in gathering all of the information about his true experiences in Beirut and at 9-11 allowed the prosecutors to give an offer that was reasonable. Something that Richard could live with. He was upset about being sent to prison, but he appreciated all the extra effort that saved at least a few years of his time. Richard was able to send his belongings to his defense attorney. He was able to get his affairs in order before they sent him off to prison. He's able to make sure his boat was looked after, not personally, but through writings before he got sent off, far away in prison. State prisons, you don't know where they're gonna send you. So he didn't know if he was gonna have any capabilities of watching after his things when he was sent off. And unfortunately, this time being sent off, he wasn't going to fight for the country. He was going to be put in a cage by our country. Richard served his time well. He took the time to read, explore his spirituality, explore what he needs to do to truly deal with his PTSD. But that doesn't take the fact away that spending that much time in a cage is still deteriorating his mentality. If he were out and he was working with counselors and psychologists, he'd be able to readily apply the lessons he's learning. He'd be able to try to deal with PTSD in a healthy manner, in healthy relationships. But inside a cage, there are only theories. So he reads his theories, he tries his best to get his mind right, knowing that in a few years, he may be able to be back and try to apply them in the real world. Richard will hopefully take a lot away from the classes and the resources, the minimal resources he's able to get while inside prison. And we hope and we pray that he comes out and he's able to enjoy his life. But honestly, the time he's spending in it is making his work of getting to a place of joy that much harder. He has so much more hate and anger towards the system, the system that he fought for, the system that he went overseas to protect, the system that turned around and slapped him in the face. It's going to take a lot more of healing and a lot more counseling for him to get over that kind of anger. So we've set him back a few years. The prosecutor knew that. They were told time and time again. But they were unwilling to seek justice. All they saw were scary words and the ability to send a man to a cage. Our veterans deserve better than that. And I hope those of you listening understand that reform is necessary in all levels, veterans and otherwise. This story was a freedom story of struggle and victory. We were able to shed off years of his incarceration, and he was able to take a sentence that he could deal with, and there's victory in that. But there's still a lot of struggle. It's an everyday struggle, and I can't wait for the day to have him out again when we can celebrate freedom and celebrate the future. But until then, he has to deal with the past. He has to look at the past injustices that have been done to him, and he has to deal with that somehow. So it's with mixed emotions that I share the story with you, some frustration and some joy. But I appreciate you listening, and thank you for joining us this week in Freedom Stories. And please come back next week as I share yet another Freedom Story.